This is The Other Side with Damien Curry. G'day and welcome to episode 14 of The Other Side Australia, uploaded Friday morning, November 27, 2020. Welcome wherever you're listening, on your way to work, at the gym, doing chores, lazing around, whatever. This is your summary of the news and views of the past week. What on earth is the Great Reset? Everyone seems to be talking about it suddenly. It's not a conspiracy theory. It's a real thing, and it's awful. We'll find out why, and we'll give you all you need to know about it shortly. Donald Trump starts to involve Joe Biden in briefings and potential handover work, even as his legal fight continues to prove the U.S. presidential election result fraudulent and illegal. Ray Radowski, our North America expert, will help us make sense of all of that later on in the show. Joe Biden also announces his key cabinet picks. We'll look at the ones that really matter for Australia in a little more detail than you'd hear on the mainstream media. It's important stuff to know about. The inquiry into the SAS. We'll hear some of the opinions of people in the know about what to do with the horrendous Afghanistan allegations. But we question the unjustifiable criticism of the wider SAS and Defence Forces. Alexandra Marshall will tell us all about the insanity of Dan Andrews' casual work rules and the overall attack on your right to choose just how secure you want your work to be and businesses' right to choose how best to hire people. Not everyone wants their employer to be their parent. Just pay them fairly for the work they deliver. Alexandra will decipher all of that for us and explain what's going on. And the new book by that slayer of the whining woke generation, Jordan Peterson, has the identity politics kiddies all in a tiz. All that is coming up as we bring you right up to speed on Australia's best no-nonsense commentary of the week, all in just one jam-packed hour. Let's go. Before we get into the show proper today, a special anniversary. It is 30 years this week since Margaret Thatcher, Conservative Prime Minister of the UK, had her final week on the job and attended her very last question time in Parliament. She came from very humble beginnings but rose to be the longest-serving British Prime Minister of the 20th century, serving 11 years straight from 1979 to 1990, and she was the first woman in the job. She was given the nickname the Iron Lady by a Soviet journalist because of her tough leadership style and her uncompromising approach. And she was as detested by her political enemies as she was loved by those who passionately supported her. In her last Prime Minister's Question Time in Westminster on November 27, 1990, she was still fighting on and educating the lefties until the end. Take a listen. There is no doubt that the Prime Minister has in many ways achieved substantial success. There is one statistic that I understand is not, however, challengeable, and that is that over her 11 years, the gap between the richest 10% and the poorest 10% in this country has widened substantially. How can she say at the end of her chapter of British politics that she can justify many people in a constituency such as mine being relatively much poorer, much less well-housed, and much less well-provided than it was in 1979? Surely she accepts that is not a record that she or any Prime Minister can be proud of. 
Mr. Speaker, all levels of income are better off than they were in 1979. But what the Honourable Member is saying is that he would rather the poor were poorer, provided the rich were less rich. That way you will never create the wealth for better social services as we have. And what a policy! Yes, he would rather have the poor poorer, provided the rich were less rich. That is a liberal policy. Yes, it came out. He didn't intend it to, but he did. I give way to the, the honourable gentleman. I'm extremely, I'm extremely grateful. The, the, the Prime Minister is aware that uh, I detest every single one of her domestic policies and have never had that. <laughs> I think that the Honourable Gentleman knows that I have the same contempt for his socialist policies as the people of East Europe who have experienced it have it for that. I think I must have hit the right nail on the head when I pointed out that the logic of those policies are they'd rather have the poor poorer. Once they start to talk about the gap, they'd rather the gap was that down here. So long as the gap is smaller, they'd rather have the poor poorer. You do not create wealth and opportunity that way. You do not create a property-owning democracy that way. I'm most grateful to the Prime Minister. Will she tell us whether she intends to continue her own personal fight against a single currency and an independent central bank when she leaves office? No, she's going to be the governor. Prime Minister. What a good idea. <laughs> I hadn't thought of it. And that was Margaret Thatcher, Britain's longest serving Prime Minister and the first woman in the job. 30 years ago today, in her last Prime Minister's Question Time in Parliament in Westminster. Boy, could we do with some leadership and fortitude like that again. Do remember to follow us on YouTube by actually clicking the subscribe button and the like button. It's free and uh, it will keep you notified of when the new episodes come up. You can search us up as The Other Side Australia. Don't forget the Australia bit. Or you can check out the Good Source channel. That's Source S-A-U-C-E. Uh, and you'll find all the other great shows that are hosted on that platform too. So two ways to get us on, on YouTube. If you're a podcast person, we're on Apple, Spotify, and iHeartRadio and all the good podcast platforms. So please do subscribe there as well. Uh, and uh, join our Facebook page too. We update a lot on there and we chat a lot on there. So great place to leave your comments and thoughts. Uh, we do upload the podcast every Friday morning for your commute to work or gym workout or Friday morning sleep in, hi clarky. And we will get you up to speed with all the news and commentary before the weekend. Okay, so let's start with the what I think is the most important news of the week for Australians, but the mainstream media won't tell you about it in detail because they think it's too boring and you won't understand and they, they don't treat you with any intelligence. But Joe Biden has started to announce his new cabinet, his new 
group of executives that are going to run things in his government. In a big event earlier this week, he lined them all up on stage with big signs, the office of the president-elect behind. And Joe himself came out and said, the US is back and ready to lead. Well, that's nice. What a nice unifying message that is. In other words, we weren't leading before. Okay. Now, I, I thought a lot of Donald Trump's foreign policy was quite good. Peace agreements in the Middle East, a refusal to take the US into a hasty war with Iran, a desire to bring US troops home from foreign conflicts, a firm stance on China's expansionism in the Asia-Pacific and around the world, an insistence that other rich countries start to pay more for their own defence rather than leaning on the American taxpayers. Obviously, I was wrong all along to think any of that was good. Anyway, here's what Joe had to say at the event. It's a team that will keep our country and our people safe and secure. And it's a team that reflects the fact that America is back, ready to lead the world, not retreat from it, once again sit at the head of the table, ready to confront our adversaries and not reject our allies, ready to stand up for our values. In fact, in calls from world leaders that I've had, about 18 of them or 20 so far, I'm not sure the exact number, in the weeks since we won the election, I've been struck by how much they're looking forward to the United States reasserting its historic role as a global leader, both in the Pacific as well as the Atlantic, all across the world. Now, the cabinet, the executive government, in the US, it's selected differently than here in Australia. In Australia, like the UK, we have a cabinet made up of ministers who are actually members of parliament, and they oversee appointed director generals in the public service. In America, the president can choose anyone to be in their cabinet, and they call them secretaries, not ministers, but they can come from anywhere. And they usually act more like an Australian departmental director general, very hands-on and with a lot of experience in the specific department or field that they're, that they're overseeing. The first to be announced was Anthony Blinken. He'll be Joe Biden's Secretary of State. That cabinet position is the equivalent to our foreign affairs minister, so it's the most important one as far as Australia is concerned. So who is Anthony Blinken? Well, Blinken served as the US Deputy Secretary of State from 2015 to 2017 and Deputy National Security Advisor before that under President Barack Obama. He's currently a global affairs analyst for CNN. During the Clinton administration, Blinken served in the State Department and in senior positions on the National Security Council's staff, according to Wikipedia. He was also a member of the Obama-Biden presidential transition team. And then he served as deputy assistant to the president and national security advisor to the vice president in the Obama years. So he's been Mr. Biden's go-to guy on national security for a very long time. He's a lifetime Democrat and a public servant, and so he's got the right CV. Mr. President-elect, working for you, having you as a mentor and friend, has been the greatest privilege of my professional life. Now, Blinken has a little bit of connection to Australia. His stepfather, Samuel Pizar, uh, he died in 2015, but he was a young survivor of the Nazi Holocaust. And the Australian newspaper reports that he was a self-described teenage hooligan after the war, and he might have become a terrorist or gangster had an aunt not helped bring him to Melbourne. Having lost six years of education and his entire immediate family, imagine that, Pizar went back to school, 
finished high school at 19 in Melbourne. He won a scholarship to study law at Melbourne University. He became an internationally renowned lawyer and political advisor. And in 2008, he was awarded an honorary doctorate of law from Melbourne Uni. Quite a story. That's the stepfather of the new Secretary of State nominee for the United States, Anthony Blinken. All right, another position that's very important to Australia is the US Ambassador to the United Nations. And the nominee for that position is a lady called Linda Thomas-Greenfield. I want to say to you, America is back. Multilateralism is back. Diplomacy is back. Mr. President-elect, I've often heard you say how all politics is personal, and that's how you build relationships of trust and bridge disagreements and find common ground. Hmm. Okay, so here's where I have a bit of a problem with that one. One of the big mistakes the Obama administration made with China was that it sought to engage with China as a partner, a friend, and build trust. That's nice, but it only works when the other party can be trusted and when the other party has shown that they also wish to build a relationship based on mutual trust and respect. It doesn't work with a foreign government whose ultimate aim is to dominate you, to become the one and only world superpower. And that is the Communist Party of China's long-term goal. Chinese diplomats would refer to the Americans and other Westerners as smiling fools and would smile back. So no, I think this would be a very dangerous approach to take with a nation whose government has proven time and time again that it seeks only to expand its own power and its own authoritarian control over others and even over its own people. But maybe I'm wrong. Who knows? The third appointment, uh, and the last one that I think we really as Australians need to pay a little bit of attention to, is the US National Security Advisor nominee, Jake Sullivan. Now, in just a few seconds, Jake had me quite worried. Here's Jake. Sir, we will be vigilant in the face of enduring threats, from nuclear weapons to terrorism. But you have also tasked us with reimagining our national security for the unprecedented combination of crises we face at home and abroad, the pandemic, the economic crisis, the climate crisis, technological disruption, threats to democracy, racial injustice, and inequality in all forms. Oh, dear God help us. Jake Sullivan, folks, the National Security Advisor nominee for the Biden administration, uh, the far-left big government agenda writ large. And he's a young millennial, 43 years old, full of ideology and vision for a a nice, even, neat, level, fair world. Government can fix everything, folks, especially inequality. It's worked very well in the past, worked extremely well in the 20th century. Just ask the 100 million dead people that were murdered by their own governments. And I'm not exaggerating, okay? Sounds dramatic, but it actually did happen in the 20th century, and we really need to take some lessons from that. So I really hope that Jake is only talking about eliminating the inequality of opportunity and will still have respect for the freedom of the individual to excel above the pack and lift the rest of us up with them. That's liberty. That's liberalism. And that's what a good hierarchy is for. You know, you respect the people who have achieved. You respect the people who have more experience than you. And God forbid, you respect your elders in a good society. But somehow, I don't think that's what Jake Sullivan is talking about. So get ready for 
big state government and a big government globalist US of A again. It got me stone cold. Coming up next, what on earth is the Great Reset? Nope, it's not a conspiracy theory. It's a real thing. We'll find out just how horrible the globalists' new agenda is and we'll give you all you need to know. And later, Ray Rudowski, our North America expert, will help us make sense of the US situation without just dismissing Trump and his concerns about the legality of the election. We'll tell you what's going on as best as we can, and we'll let you make up your own mind, unlike the mainstream media here in Australia. And the inquiry into our SAS, why we should all be appalled by the allegations, but why we should also be supporting our troops. It got me stone Speaking of big state, giant government and globalism, no doubt by now you've heard of this thing called The Great great Reset. reset. I have to admit that uh, when I first heard about The Great Reset, I thought it was some kind of conspiracy theory. But no, it's a real thing. It has a website. It's an initiative of the quite respected World Economic Forum, a globalist organization that has that meeting of the global elites in Davos, Switzerland every year. So let's recap on what the World Economic Forum is. The World Economic Forum is based in Switzerland, was founded in 1971 by a guy called Klaus Schwab. Its stated mission says it is committed to improving the state of the world by engaging business, political, academic and other leaders of society to shape global, regional and industry agendas. At the end of every January in Davos, in the Swiss Alps, you'll find Bill Gates, Michael Bloomberg, Mark Zuckerberg, all the big guns usually about 3,000 business leaders, international political leaders, economists, celebrities, journalists, the elite, meeting for up to five days for a big conference with about 500 sessions on global issues. Now, there's nothing wrong with that. It's good that the power people get together and talk. It gets them collaborating on important stuff, and I think we all benefit. It's better than having them all fighting and using the rest of us as cannon fodder. The WEF also runs a half dozen or so regional meetings around the world each year too. Well, in May this year, the WEF and one of the Prince of Wales charities, yes, he who shall soon be our King Charles, launched what must be the most insensitively badly branded initiatives by a big globalist organisation in the history of big globalist organisations naming big initiatives. They launched... The Great Reset. I mean, Monty Python couldn't have come up with a more comical name. I'd love to have been in that branding meeting at the WEF. Hey, everyone, so we've got a bit of a problem with uh, people thinking that we're some kind of weird organisation of global elites who are trying to create one world government and take over the planet. So I thought a really good name for our new initiative might be, um, I don't know, The Great Reset. Oh, yeah, that sounds great, John. That won't bother people concerned about their national sovereignty or excite the conspiracy theorists into a frenzy or at all. Have any of these people actually read the history of China and Chairman Mao's Great Leap Forward? It was only 60 years ago. Obviously, Prince Charles hasn't. So I do urge you to check out the website for the Great Reset, theworldeconomicforum.org. I'll leave the link in the program notes. But here's, let's just take a little bit of a look at at what the page actually says. 
It says, there's an urgent need for global stakeholders to cooperate in simultaneously managing the direct consequences of the COVID-19 crisis. Okay, so this is about COVID-19. To improve the state of the world, the World Economic Forum is starting the Great Reset Initiative. Nobody asked it to, but, you know, they just thought it'd be a good idea. And then it goes on, the context. Oh, the context. The COVID-19 crisis and the political, economic and social disruptions it's caused is fundamentally changing the traditional context for decision-making. The inconsistencies, inadequacies and contradictions of multiple systems, from health and financial to energy and education, are more exposed than ever amidst a global context of concern for lives, livelihoods and the planet. Leaders find themselves at a historic crossroads, managing short-term pressures against medium and long-term uncertainties. Right. Okay, so we've just extended the COVID-19 crisis into everything that ever was of concern. That's the context, according to the WEF. And now, the opportunity heading. What's under that? As we enter a unique window of opportunity to shape the recovery, this initiative will offer insights to help inform all those determining the future state of global relations, the direction of our national economies, the priorities of societies, the nature of business models, and the management of a global commons. Hmm. Drawing from the vision and vast experience of the leaders engaged across the forum's communities, the Great Reset Initiative has a set of dimensions to build a new social contract that honours the dignity of every human being. If you think that that sounds like a load of meaningless waffle... The reason is it's a load of meaningless waffle. It's the typical socialist sort of overlay of jargon and utter BS uh, over the top of, or to disguise as a bit of a Trojan horse, the ushering in of centralized big government, big state regulations and controls. Okay, so let's not fall for the Great Reset. Let's meet it head on with the Great Reject. Because national sovereignty, pluralism, and dare I say, individual sovereignty, matter. We can cooperate and should cooperate on many things. But when one group of global elites, even if it's 3,000 of them, and only half of them are elected, think that it's a good idea to collaborate and start regulating us to within an inch of our lives and then imposing those regulations on a global scale so we can't get away from them, then we need to resist. This is not good. And with Joe Biden in the White House, who's going to be the voice of the great reject of the great reset? Coming up next, Alexandra Marshall gives us her take on the Great Reset and fills us in on the latest crazy move by our Labour politicians that will almost certainly be a big job killer and small business destroyer. And the deafening silence on it from the Liberal Party. Jordan Peterson upsets the snowflakes just by putting out a new book. And we will try to get to the bottom of what is going on in America with all these election lawsuits. Some very interesting stuff coming up and a hysterically funny take on Barack Obama's latest book. Stay with us, or if you do need to pause, make sure you do come back. And 
joining us now, as always, Alexandra Marshall, the Queen of uh, Australian Libertarian, Classical Liberal and Conservative Twitter. Alexandra, welcome. Oh, it's wonderful to be here on this beautiful summer afternoon. You have some ideas about this great reset. I'm doing an investigative article uh, that'll probably be released in another couple of weeks because the amount of rubbish to read through is extraordinary. Everything you click on, there's hundreds more pages of plans that these basically Bond villains have laid out for us. Um, but so the worst one I've come across so far is uh, I clicked on the Great Reset website and on that website they have a list of partners and these partners include people like Apple, Netflix, uh, Facebook and all of the banks are on there as partners. So, I mean, you get the drill. And when you click on one of these partners like Facebook or Apple, you get a list of all the projects they're currently working on and these projects, every single one of them, is a nightmare out of a dystopian sci-fi. So these are things like turning your wearable tech, like your Fitbits and your phone, into feeding that information back to the World Economic Forum and places like The Who to then track viruses without your permission or track the health of the nation without your permission. These are updates that Facebook will do automatically. Every sort of socialist or communist authoritarian government has come to power uh, acting in the greater good. You know, they talk about the opportunity from COVID-19 for a great reset. It's really the opportunity from co- that COVID-19 presents to, as a crisis, never let a good crisis go to waste, to actually uh, convince people that all of this stuff is now more necessary than ever and move a step closer to their uh, the, the unified one world surveillance state that the conspiracy theorists talk about, which may not be much of a, a conspiracy yes, anymore. It's the old it's the old idea of a global socialist state that they've resurrected from the last revolution. And a global socialist state is nothing but world domination. And of course, world domination never works because the nations have different ideas about what they want and what kind of civilizations they want to live in. And humans, by definition, are fracturous. We like to go out um, and diversify and create new communities in different areas. That's part of our our basic human drive. So the idea they can take us under one idea and one goal is ridiculous and it'll only end in bloodshed and war. But you're quite right about this greater good idea. Um, I'm reading through their annual report that they released for 2019-2020 and they say things like, we want to harness the technologies of the fourth industrial revolution. We want to design cohesive, stable and resilient social and economic systems to improve the state of the world. And I'm sorry, but everyone who's tried to do that has ended up being a bloody dictator. It just sounds like so Brave New World 1984 to me, all of it. But with with this Davos thing, I keep getting confused with the Doctor Who villain, which was Davros. And I'm sure I'm going to make that mistake on a public platform in the future. Davros. Yes, Davros, of course. Forgot about you Wasn't know, the he the leader of the, of the Daleks? Yes. Correct. Exterminate! Exterminate! And so that's all I can see now. Whenever this they mention that forum, like it's just the Daleks are back. All right. So on to more important things. Big story this week was that uh, the news that casual workers um, in Victoria are going to be given sick and carers pay to stay at home under a trial that's being funded by the Victorian government that's going to cost $5 million. Premier Dan Andrews announced the, the trial will run for two years. He announced it last Monday morning. And uh, he said that um, it, it's necessary because uh, employees in insecure work are too often forced to choose between a day's pay and their health. What, what's your take on this, Ellie? 
Casual work is absolutely fundamental to the retail and hospitality industry. It is also the way that uh, particularly mums getting back to work and students who need to supplement their uh, studies like to get some extra cash because in casual work, you trade off your security of leave for extra cash per hour that you work. That's the whole point of casual work. And that also means that you can cancel your shift without notice on the business as well. So it doesn't just work one way. Now, the union movement and labor by extension hate casual work, primarily because they cannot unionize it. And recently, I think it was last year, there was a case for the coal mining award in which they found that coal mining workers did not have uh, a proper um, extra pay for the hours they worked because, and they also didn't have leave. Now, that was a problem specific to the coal mining award. It had absolutely nothing to do with the way retail workers and hospitality workers are paid. Right. And then the, the, the union guys decided that because they'd, they'd sort of had this victory over there, well, they could extend that to define casual work as any kind of uh, work that doesn't have proper shifts and things and then that they should all be entitled to the same amount of workers as full-timers and permanent part-timers. Same amount of leave. Now, yes, well- and that is, of course... Uh, false. Well, it's why they get paid more, as you said. I mean, we pay casual workers more because they don't have that job security. They don't have security of hours. They don't have uh, sick leave. As soon as that started, that noise started being made last year, uh, the retail and hospitality community uh, petitioned the Eternity General, Christian Porter, immediately because he was the one overseeing these cases about the coal mining awards. And so now he's fighting on the correct side to stop it leaking into other industries but he's too slow off the mark. So now we've got people like Daniel Andrews in Victoria cuddling up to the unions going, I know what I'll do. I'll destroy casual work for all of our industries that are in desperate need of uh, flexibility in this time of post-COVID. And so the retailers are looking at getting rid of casual work entirely and hospitality because you can't have some of your workers who are doing the same amount of work being paid enormous surcharges and other ones not being paid because it creates jealousy inside the workforce. It doesn't make any economic or financial sense for struggling businesses to do so, and which is exactly what Labor wants. They want to see the end of casual work, which is no good for working mothers, and it's no good for oh. students, and it's no good for struggling people looking for jobs who can only work one or two days a week. I immediately thought of the, the imp- impact for working mothers. I mean, there's a massive resource there of brain power in professional intelligence, smart women, hardworking women, um, who decide to take on the role of, of being a mother, which is a very important thing that we ought to be supporting as a society, and they only want to work part-time. And if we don't have the flexibility, uh, we can't tap into that. And business has been told for years that, that, that it has to uh, start accommodating more flexible arrangements for people. And yet we've got the union movement and the far left or even just the left saying, uh, no, hang on a minute, we're going to refer to all casual work as insecure work from now on. We're going to rebrand it insecure work. Well, this is the problem with socialism. It always comes to you saying, oh, look, we're doing a great thing. We're going to give people more uh, more rights. You're going, no, what you're doing is breaking the system, which was designed specifically this way to give people more cash for hours they're working with the flexibility they require to do their work. So basically, it's just labor destroying the business community of Australia again. It's labor destroying jobs. It's labor destroying the things it should be protecting in order to consolidate power. And where are the Liberal Party? Where is the Liberal Party in Victoria calling this out? I've not seen any press releases. I haven't heard them coming onto TV to shriek about how destructive and terrible this is. Why aren't they fighting the corner 
for businesses and employees in Australia. They've got to be loud and obnoxious and in the press every day. Otherwise, no one will see or hear them. And it doesn't even need to be obnoxious. You just need to be out there telling the story and changing the narrative to something that resembles the truth, which is that, you know, this isn't all sugar and spice and all things nice. These people are not sweet. There's something really wrong with leadership at a state level. Uh, with these Labor zealots um, like Andrews and like Palaszczuk and like McGowan. And I I think we've got to start to really seriously uh, show them up. And you're right, the Liberal Party is absolutely failing to do that when it, where it's in opposition and when it's in government, it's not acting fast enough to make the kind of cultural changes we need to make uh, to cultural institutions like our education system, like our media, like the ABC, in order to uh, balance things out and explain to people that, you know, there is another way to look at the world. There is another worldview about business and growth and prosperity and looking after poor people and having good health care and good age care and good disabled care. All of the things that we need as a society uh, can be delivered in a different way and in a much, much more efficient and better way than the way these guys are doing it, who are just protecting their own big state, big government jobs. Was that a big enough rant, do you think? Did I cover uh, like the whole universe and everything that's wrong with it there? Yeah, I don't think you said you hate the CFWMEU enough times. No, okay, I'll leave that to you because I'm scared. No, I'm just I am really just scared that they come knocking on the door. Why is everyone so scared of them? I'll, I'll pick up my laptop and my stick and I'll beat them all. Good on I'm you. not frightened of them. Ali Melly, thank you very, very much for joining us. Just a reminder that Ali Melly has her new show happening on The Good Source, our platform. Uh, Ellie, uh, tell us a little bit about Curtain Call. My show is called Curtain Call, where we go behind the curtain on the stars of the culture wars. I have, as my first guest coming out on this Friday, is Gary Hardgrave. And Damien Curry, you will be my next guest, and that will be coming out next week. I'm seriously terrified of this interview. So The Good Source, S-A-U-C-E, it is, not S-O-U-R-C-E. Uh, so thegoodsource.news, not .com, thegoodsource.news, and you'll catch um, uh, the other side on there. You'll get Ali's new show, uh, other fantastic shows like uh, The People's Project uh, with Matthew Wong and team, Lyle Shelton's show, um, so heaps to, to keep you occupied on The Good Source. Alexandra Marshall, catch you next week. Thank you very much. Coming up next, what's happening with the SAS? We'll explore with Professor David Flint what could be our greatest military shame and the reactions to it. Jordan Peterson's new book is making the loony left all triggered and upset, while Barack Obama's new autobiography has conservatives in stitches. That's all going to be explained shortly. I'd like to take a moment to say thank you. Thank you to the Australian SAS soldiers who work and train their guts out to be sent to far-flung countries and spend months away from family and friends in defence of this nation. Thank you for doing the unspeakable dirty work of battle so that we may continue to live in freedom and richness and peace like no other people on earth. Thank you for battling the demons that may haunt you upon your return home. And thank you to all our service men and women while I'm at it. We enjoy our lifestyle under the blanket of protection provided by your sacrifice, and we should never forget it. This week, the report from the four-year inquiry into the validity of rumours of war crimes committed by our SAS forces in Afghanistan between 2005 and 2016 revealed that there was 
Credible evidence of 39 unlawful killings of Afghan civilians or prisoners. And the findings were heavily redacted. The inquiry was conducted by Major General Paul Brereton, and it found that 39 killings occurred in 23 separate incidents involving 25 current or former ADF personnel. And worse still, the inquiry found credible evidence of cover-ups. Some soldiers carried out throwdowns, where foreign weapons or equipment were placed on the bodies of the dead in order to portray that the person had been carrying a weapon and was a legitimate target. And perhaps most horrifically, in terms of suggesting systemic cultural problems within the SAS, there were credible findings that junior soldiers were required by their commanders to shoot prisoners in a practice described as blooding. The report said that a cover story was created for the purposes of operational reporting and to deflect scrutiny. This was reinforced with a code of silence. Two alleged incidents in 2012 have been fully redacted from the report, but were described as, quote, possibly the most disgraceful episode in Australia's military history. This isn't about misconduct in the heat of battle. The victims of these alleged incidents were civilians, prisoners, or non-combatants. The alleged killings did not occur in circumstances where the intent of the perpetrator was, quote, unclear or confused or mistaken. The report also said that protracted and repeated deployment of Special Forces troops was a contributing factor to the incidents due to fatigue and a lost sense of purpose. Now, the inquiries recommended 36 matters involving 19 soldiers be referred to the Australian Federal Police for criminal investigation, and the 2nd Squadron SAS has already been disbanded. The National President of the RSL and the Australian Commando Association, Greg Mellick, told the ABC that the allegations against SAS troops were horrific, but the soldiers are entitled to due process. Former SAS Commander and Federal, federal Liberal MP Andrew Hastie has expressed his personal grief and shame over the alleged war crimes. Interestingly, the inquiry by Justice Brereton found no blame rested with the top brass. But Mr Hastie told The Australian this week that responsibility has got to be shared and that soldiers and officers need accountability and firm leadership in the degrading cockpit of war. He said over-reliance on elite SAS troops had hardened the hearts of soldiers sent on multiple deployments and that certain aspects of warrior culture, including ego, entitlement and exceptionalism, have got to be condemned. But other elements were an important part of elite combat units. You need people who run to the sound of guns, he said, who are prepared to fight and destroy Australia's enemies and who will die doing so if necessary. What's been astounding to me in all of this debate this past week is not the justifiable outrage at the horrors of these allegations, which, if proven, are a serious blot on Australia's military reputation, but the way in which some commentators and people are tarring all SAS soldiers, past and present, and all service men and women, with the same brush. These allegations concern a very small number of the 84,000 people who serve in the Australian Defence Forces. And the cultural problems do need to be weeded out. But even they existed in just one part of the long and distinguished history 
of RSAS. Andrew Hastie chairs the Parliamentary Committee on Intelligence and Security, and he says he wants to create a committee that has the power to actually compel defence chiefs and bureaucrats to come before it to show that we are serious about increased accountability and so that Parliament can exercise proper civilian oversight of the military. And that is a very good thing. In his podcast, Take Back Your Country, my fellow Good Source contributor, Professor David Flint, had this important reminder for us all. Soldiers have just been through a four-year-long investigation of uh, what has happened in relation to the SAS in Afghanistan. And throughout that, the presumption of innocence seems to have been abandoned. Journalists were given special access to the investigation. They published all manner of things, and the soldiers didn't receive legal aid to help them defend themselves unlike refugees or anybody claiming to be a refugee who are handed legal aid on a platter, our soldiers received nothing. And now we have the report. It's been released without names. It's been released. It is now a stain on the SAS and indeed on the Defence Forces together. And even then, we're told now, after four years, yet another investigator will be appointed, or indeed a team of lawyers to investigate and decide on prosecutions. And all this will occur in an indeterminate time. How many more years of the lives of young soldiers are going to be taken out and damaged and seriously ruined, with some of them wondering whether it's worth going on? This is a terrible thing that we are doing to a number of our soldiers, and not only in the SAS. This is not the first time the soldiers have been subject to unfair prosecutions. Back in 2009 in Afghanistan, some of our soldiers were advancing towards a compound, and they were fired on. Naturally, they returned fire. Now, unfortunately, when they returned fire, that fire also hit a number of civilians. The soldiers weren't to know there were civilians in the compound, and what were they to do when they were fired on? I think most people with common sense would say, well, this is unfortunate, but nothing can be done about it. In the air-conditioned offices of Canberra, apparently things were seen differently, and the Director of Military Prosecutions launched a prosecution against the soldiers charging them with manslaughter for doing no more than doing what you have to do as a soldier. And you can imagine the trauma on those soldiers, knowing that they were about to be prosecuted, not knowing where this would end. Fortunately, the head of the, the, head of the tribunal examining them decided that these prosecutions were bad in law. You couldn't sustain them because how could you argue that the soldiers owed any duty of care in relation to the civilians who were in the compound and they didn't even know existed. The politicians have to avoid being unjust to our soldiers, dragging these things out for years and years, exposing them to unfair publicity in the media. 
what the politicians have to do, and particularly in relation to our soldiers, is to ensure that those willing to die for their country are at least entitled to the presumption of innocence. Another reason, I'm sure you would agree, for Australians to take back their country from their politicians. Professor David Flint there on his podcast, Take Back Your Country, which is also, like us, available on The Good Source. Coming up next, Ray Rudowski releases the Kraken. We will bring you up to date on the US situation and explain what the Kraken actually is, all in detail, without the lefty bias. And we'll find out why Obama's autobiography number two has conservatives laughing themselves sick. Keep it locked on. Don't go away. Got some great news. The Other Side Australia is very happy to now be one of the shows available on the Good Source Network. The Good Source, spelt S-A-U-C-E dot news, is an Australian platform for right-thinking podcasts and vlogs. When I moved back to Australia early this year after spending almost 20 years in Asia, I was shocked at how journalism had changed since the late 90s when I was on Channel 10. Like America, Australia's broadcast media was becoming very editorialised and political. But unlike America, it seemed only one ideological viewpoint dominated, the left, with only a couple of notable exceptions. The Good Source is a right-thinking website bringing some truth and balance to the Aussie media echo chamber. Good Source is the first conservative source of videos and podcasts like mine by so many independent voices from around the country, from classical liberals like me to libertarians and conservatives. We agree and we disagree, but we at least bring the other side of the conversation to the table. That's Good Source, S-A-U-C-E dot news. Well, you may have heard that Jordan Peterson's got a new book coming out called Beyond Order, 12 More Rules for Life. This uh, hasn't pleased a number of the uh, publishing house's employees. Several Penguin Random House Canada employees apparently confronted management about the company's decision to publish the book. What is wrong with these people? But they can't tolerate a book that is slightly perhaps different to uh, their beliefs or the dominant thinking of the moment. I mean, it's Jordan Peterson, for goodness sakes. He's highly popular. Who do they think pays their salary? Vice News reports that four uh, Penguin Random House Canada employees who didn't want to be named (laughs) due to concerns over their employment or due to concerns over their reputation as sane human beings, I think, said the company held a town hall uh, during which executives defended the decision to publish Peterson while employees cited their concerns about platforming someone who is popular in far-right circles. Quote, he is an icon of hate speech and transphobia. And the fact that he's an icon of white supremacy, regardless of the content of his book, I'm not proud to work for a company that publishes him, a junior employee said. Well, tell you what I'd be doing if I owned that company. I'd be showing that junior employee the door. That company doesn't exist to make you proud, young whatever you are. And if I was a shareholder in this company, I'd start uh, questioning their board of directors about how they're disciplining and working uh, to control this kind of brat childish outrage amongst their ranks of, of the ranks of their employees. Jordan Peterson's daughter, Michaela, tweeted just after this, uh, this all hit the news the other night. She said, uh, how to improve business in two steps. Step one, identify crying adults. Step two, fire them. Good on you, Michaela. 
The Australian activist and Twitter celebrity, the Imam of Peace, tweeted, Jordan Peterson is one of the greatest, smartest and brightest scholars to ever contribute to human thought. His manners are gold, his tears are genuine, and his passion to spread good is beyond inspiring. I just heard they're trying to cancel his next book. I shall pre-order it. But I think the tweet of the week has to go to Prager U. Adults literally crying over Jordan Peterson writing a book need more Jordan Peterson in their life. And joining us now, as usual, every week, Ray Rudowski, our man on North America. Ray, how you doing? Good day. Well, it's been a very interesting <laughs> week since we last spoke, and I think um, we're here to talk about releasing the Kraken. The Kraken. We're releasing the Kraken. What on earth is the Kraken? It's been all over social media. Release the Kraken. The Goodbye. Kraken is a mythical Scandinavian Old Norse a sea monster octopus with all these tentacles that brings down ships in the middle of the night and is out there somewhere swirling around. Ah, uh, the Kraken. The yeah, mythical Kraken. Okay. And so the connection between this Scandinavian octopus and American politics, would you like to just uh, join the dots there for us? <laughs> right. Well, I think it was brought up by one of the lawyers that's investigating all these allegations of voter fraud and improprieties and, and inconsistencies and irregularities with the voting systems. Sidney Powell, who on a in an interview with Lou Dobbs, brought up the idea that in her investigation, she's going to discover all these things that uh, will release the Kraken. And I guess what she's talking about is this idea of this giant sea monster bringing down uh, all those behind the voter fraud, which he's alleging. This looks like the effort to uh, to carry out an end game in the in the effort against him. Uh, do you concur? Oh, absolutely. And it's uh, it's been uh, organized and and conducted with the help of Silicon Valley people, the the big tech companies, the social media companies, and even the media companies. And I'm going to release the Kraken. There was this note that came out from the Trump campaign saying that Sidney Powell is not part of the Trump uh, legal defense team. And that was brought up by the media as somehow beating it up to say that there's dissent in the ranks as this whole thing kind of goes off the rails. But in her own statement, she said, that's right. I was never part of that uh, uh, actual Trump defense team. I was never paid by them. I've been conducting my own investigation and will continue to do so. Okay, but she's a conservative. She's passionate. She's looking at every possible angle and she's investigating stuff and she's not going to be told to shut up. So obviously mainstream media don't want to have any, any, anything to do with her. Let's have a listen to what she told Lou Dobbs uh, several days ago. It is a, a foul mess uh, and it is uh, far more sinister than any of us could have imagined, uh, even uh, over the course of the past four years. You get the last word, Sydney. It is indeed a very foul mess. It is farther and wider and deeper than we ever thought, but we are going to go after it, and I am going to expose every one of them. Okay, well, that's all great, but, you know, show me the money, Sydney. Where is the evidence? I mean, it's getting a bit uh, tired and, and worn out now, Ray. I mean, everyone's a bit sick of it, wants to move on with, uh, with President-elect Biden. There's a number of lawsuits that are still in play in a variety of states. There's the recount that's taking place in Wisconsin. There's the constitutional challenge in Pennsylvania. Um, and all of these things are still running their course. The most significant development uh, in the last day or so 
is the fact that the Michigan, the group responsible for certifying electors in Michigan uh, voted to certify electors. So that state is now, um, I guess, out of the loop when it comes to any potential uh, questions at this point. Um, so why would, why did they of, do that? So were they satisfied with the with the final result and the lead that uh, that Biden had in Michigan? It's a long story, but to kind of make it short, that there was uh, the canvassers, the people that were kind of responsible for looking into the election on the Republican side at first uh, refused to certify and then um, under pressure agreed to certify as long as there would be an audit. And then there was word that there wouldn't be an audit. And so they reneged on that. But in in the end the group that was responsible voted to certify and it's moving forward. Okay. So just so people know, Michigan was the state where at uh, the night of the election, Australia time, 72% of the vote had been counted and Trump had a 300,000 vote lead. And then we woke up and uh, Biden had 150,000 lead uh, with 99% of the vote counted. So uh, Biden got a heck of a lot of those, uh, those later votes that, that came in through mail-in. Uh, and this question of mail-in, I guess, is is underscoring a lot of the the discussion in the legal world. Um, constitutional legal scholar Alan Dershowitz uh, appeared on uh, Fox News, Ray, and he's a very respected, very politically neutral guy because he's worked in his career representing Democrats and Republicans. He was part of the Trump uh, defense team during the impeachment. He was also part of the dream team for O.J. Simpson. So he's got a very uh, long and very um, uh, very well uh, highlighted career as a uh, lawyer and a constitutional legal scholar. And he's bringing up this very interesting point that while Trump's arguments, uh, you know, in contesting the election in Pennsylvania are valid, it may not be enough to change the results. Let's have a listen to what Alan Dershowitz told uh, Fox News this week. Well, let me give you my completely objective, not wishful thinking, constitutional analysis. They have two or three legal constitutional paths. For example, in Pennsylvania, they have two very strong legal arguments. One, that the courts changed what the legislature did about counting ballots after the end of Election Day. That's a winning issue in the Supreme Court. I don't necessarily support it, but it's a winning issue in the Supreme Court. And Justice Alito has already hinted that's a winning issue. They also have a winning issue in the Supreme Court on equal protection, that some counties allowed flawed ballots to be cured while others didn't. Bush versus Gore suggests that an equal protection argument can prevail. The problem with that argument is they don't have the numbers necessarily to support it. If it's right that Biden's ahead by some 70 or 80,000 votes, they have to show enough contested votes under those two legal theories to change the outcome. The other legal theory they have, which is a potentially strong one, is that the computers, either fraudulently or by glitches, changed hundreds of thousands of votes. There, there are enough votes to make a difference, but I haven't seen the evidence to support that. So in one case, they don't have the numbers. In another case, they don't seem yet to have the evidence. Maybe they do. I haven't seen it. But the legal theory is there to support them if they have the numbers and they have the evidence. So that's constitutional legal scholar Alan Dershowitz there on Fox News, Ray. And I understand that uh, one of the cases that he thinks has the strongest merit is a case in Pennsylvania, which is questioning whether mail-in ballots were constitutional at all. 
Um, the issue is that the the decision to permit mail-in votes, uh, absentee voting and extending absentee voting to anyone uh, is actually not in line with the Constitution. Let's have a listen to uh, a member of Trump's Pennsylvania legal defense team, Greg Tufel. Uh, this is what he had to say about that on the Steve Bannon podcast. Um, okay. The Pennsylvania Constitution allows voting in one of two ways. One is in person. The other is if you qualify as an absentee ballot uh, elector in, in Pennsylvania. So absentee ballots are permitted under the PA Constitution if you are in the military, you're away from your, your voting district. And span that list to anybody for any reason, which is what Act 77 did, the, the law in PA that expanded mail-in balloting to anybody for any reason. You would need a PA constitutional amendment to do it lawfully. And the, the Pennsylvania legislature, in recognition of that, started the process to amend the Constitution to allow mail-in balloting. But then for some strange reason, decided to go ahead and proceed to enact Act 77 and act like it's already valid law. They just went ahead and enacted. Governor Wolf signed it. Act 77, they implemented widespread mail-in balloting. In our case, unlike all the other cases you probably have been reporting about, all the other cases require clear and convincing evidence of sufficient amount of fraud to overturn the result of the election. Our case is purely legal issues. Was Act 77 constitutional or not? We believe very strongly the law clearly shows it was not. Greg Tufel, uh, the lawyer there, speaking on Steve Bannon's show. As a result of that, he's saying that a substantial percentage of the 2.6 million mail-in votes uh, could be invalidated in Pennsylvania. Now, that would actually shake things up a bit. There are 20 Electoral College votes up for grabs in Pennsylvania, but that still wouldn't be enough to get Trump over the line, would it, Ray? A growing number of Americans, according to the Rasmussen poll that was conducted a few days ago, 47% believe that the Democrats stole the election. Oh, and this, uh, again, good. comes out of the idea that uh, even immediately afterwards, uh, conservative um, personalities and pundits on Fox News, African-American duo of uh, Diamond and Silk brought up the, the question, how is it that even though he didn't campaign, didn't talk about the issues, had these various scandals that were never really scrutinized by the media, how was it that Joe Biden was able to get more votes in this election than Barack Obama did in 2008? And then you kind of extend that a bit and you think, okay, well, here's another question. How is it that if Trump is so hated and everybody's just sick and tired of him, how was it that as the incumbent, he was able to get 17% more votes in this election than he did in 2016. Well, that's partly explained by the fact that more people voted. Well, but if they were sick and tired of him, they would have voted in greater numbers for Biden or for somebody else, or they would have stayed home. But his base was energized and he got more votes. And according to the trend in American politics, it's like the pattern has always been that the incumbent, when they win more votes, they're reelected. This was an outlier. And that's why it's starting to raise questions. Oh, God, this is going to be I'm, I'm going to get caned for this. But it sounds like, uh, Ray, you and I might be the only people in the uh, in the Australian media landscape having this conversation at the moment. You don't you're not privy to the Aussie media, but nobody down here wants to talk about the possibility or even suggest the possibility that this election uh, might go Trump's way or might have been in any way, uh, uh, you know, subject to to fraud. Um, even worse than the than the U.S. media, which is it's pretty disturbing, isn't it? That the American media are not even having these conversations, really. 
Where's that duo, Bob Woodward? Where's the duo, Bob Woodward and Carl Bernstein, and trying to follow the money in all of these situations involving these uh, voting systems and voting machines that caused these irregularities? This is a really good investigative journalist piece. And whenever Sidney Powell uh, brings up the fact that there's this possibility, she's kind of looked at as being this nutcase uh, talking about releasing the Kraken. <laughs> well, we get to see the Kraken. I'd like to see the Kraken. There are tentacles. I mean, it's right now a baby squid and maybe in, in ready to grow if you're going to look at it from that analogy. But <laughs> the possibilities here haven't been completely ruled out. And we've looked at the ideas again in terms of why isn't there greater scrutiny? Why is the FBI not examining this? Why is there not a push? And, you know, this, in, in many ways, uh, it looks like um, the Trump administration is starting to move towards some sort of an acceptance that they, they may not be able to flip the numbers. But that doesn't necessarily mean that this is over. Already you've seen, I guess, that, uh, that Trump tweeted that he, he is authorized that the, the GSA, which is the, the, the office responsible for assisting the Biden team in transition, has been authorized to work together. Good. He stressed that he will not concede. He's not conceding at all. But in the interests of the country, he's authorized that this office start to work with the Biden transition team. Well, there's certainly enough crazy stuff there to kind of make people uh, think and and that where we should have better, more inquisitive journalism going on, which we don't have. They're not doing their job. You know, yeah, Biden's probably going to win. You know, it's not looking great for uh, uh, for Trump. But nevertheless, that doesn't excuse, in my view, the absolute shutdown of any discussion that we're seeing from the left who claimed that they want to see unity and empathy and, you know, a better future uh, for American institutions and more trust in American institutions. And that worries me the most, Ray. There's obviously a lot of problems here. And those numbers you're citing from that research saying that people aren't accepting the the uh, the election result. 47% believe that the uh, Democrats stole the election. But that coincides with basically the vote split between Trump and Biden. So the country is definitely divided. But the longer that this situation continues, the more questions it raises. Now, the other landmark here or the other pivot point is going to be the January I think, third or fourth uh, runoff elections for the Senate seats in Georgia. And will we see continued allegations of voter fraud of mail-in ballots being arriving with, uh, you know, in, in a questionable state, uh, will, will there be enough scrutiny? Um, how is this going to play out? That I think is a key question that will um, influence the way in which the Senate uh, majority uh, tilts towards the Democrats or the Republicans. But I think it will also mark how the Biden administration, when it takes over, uh, is able to govern. Mm. Talking about that, uh, the Biden administration, they put their, he's put his cabinet together, uh, uh, releasing and announcing a few names this week, including uh, John Kerry and Janet Yellen. Yeah, and I think that um, what you're seeing is a lot of holdovers from the Obama years, um, but you don't see a lot of people lining up with excitement to be part of this team. And the other interesting thing, again, the media is not really raising these questions, is who's not on it? There's no mention of Bernie Sanders. There's no mention of Elizabeth Warren. Thank God. Uh, there isn't even any mention of uh, Beto O'Rourke, who was supposed to be uh, Biden's gun czar. Um, so on the Democrat side, you see an equal uh, 
split between the moderates, uh, which are now forming the bulk of the, the names put forward by Biden as his transition team in cabinet, and this radical group uh, that wa- is, is, is trying to push for all sorts of things that um, were never really talked about, but that Trump raised as watch it because this is what's coming down, a loss of freedom, a loss of freedom of speech, uh, big tech uh, dominance in um, online media. Ray, we need to finish with a bit of a laugh. It's been, uh, it's all too much. Bar- Do we have Obama. to talk about this? Oh, yeah. It's okay. hilarious. Barack Obama, this is just to give the center right and the right something to chuckle about. He's released his second autobiography. Woohoo. Uh, and there's an accompanying audio book, which goes for 29 hours. Yeah, he's not uh, at a loss for words, that's for sure. No, and they Especially say that, talking about himself. Yeah, <laughs> well, you know, it's often been said. Some people have said to me, you know, working with uh, that have been close to the Obama administration, that he has got quite an ego on him. Uh, and I think he's, um, a ta- he, he's a talker. Yeah, and I, I think that Tucker Carlson from Fox summed it up pretty well this uh, this week. <laughs> well, if you had a few days of uninterrupted free time to do literally whatever you wanted. How would you spend it? You might want to consider listening to Barack Obama talk about himself in his second autobiography for 29 hours straight. Listen to this sample from his new audiobook and try to ask yourself, are you not irresistibly attracted to that idea? In bed later that night, she turned to me and said, you're going to win, aren't you? A lot can still happen, but yeah, there's a pretty good chance I will. I looked at my wife. Her face was pensive, as if she were working out a puzzle in her mind. You're going to win, she said softly. She kissed me on the cheek, turned off the bedside lamp, and pulled the covers over her shoulders. (laughs) Adam Carolla is the host of The Adam Carolla Show. He has some ideas about how you might spend 29 hours of free time. Well, first off, let me tell you how big this book is. I downloaded it today, and my phone got heavier. It's it's uh, I think it's nineteen bucks at Amazon, but uh, shipping is seventeen hundred dollars. <laughs> what? Look, I, he's not that much older than either one of us. He was president. I'll give him that for two terms. That's great. But two autobiographies before you're sixty. I think we can say he doesn't have a self-esteem problem. Our current president. Everyone accuses of being an insane narcissist. So everyone thinks he's right. an egomaniac narcissist. But the reality is, is Obama is a bigger narcissist than Trump. Oh, yeah. Trump yeah. comes in a narcissist package you can see from outer space. And um, Obama's kind of like a stealth fighter jet, but he's much more of a narcissist than Trump is. And I know a lot of people would go, how's that possible? It is. I wonder, in the 29 hours, does he acknowledge that his mismanagement, the division that he caused within the country over eight years, paved the way for Trump? I don't know. I was only able to listen to the first 17 hours on the toilet this morning, so I haven't gotten to the rest of the book. Uh, The thing about Obama is nobody is better at saying nothing than Obama. If if there was a Hall of Fame for people that delivered no message but in a in a in a, a fantastic package i think that's obama i think that's right
But there was anger at the center of that. Ah, uh, good stuff. All right. Narcissists wherever you turn in the in the White House. <laughs> Ray Rutowski, thank you very, very much for joining us once again. We'll chat again next week, mate. All right, release the Kraken. Release the Kraken! For God's sake, soon. Can't go on like this forever. And that is it for episode 14, the show this week. Remember to follow us on YouTube by actually clicking that subscribe button and the like button. It's free to subscribe. It'll keep you notified of when the new episodes come up. So subscribe and the little bell, the notification bell button. Do that. Uh, you can search us up as The Other Side Australia. Don't forget the Australia on uh, on YouTube. Or you can check out the Good Source channel. Uh, we're on there as well. Uh, they're on YouTube or at goodsource.news, the website. Uh, and you'll find all the other great shows that are on that platform too. If you're a podcast person, we're on Apple, Spotify, and iHeartRadio. So, you know, please jump on, subscribe. Uh, and join our Facebook page as well, right? We've got a great Facebook page. Get on there and uh, and have some conversations with the other other siders uh, we do upload quite a bit on there don't forget we upload the podcast every friday morning in time for your commute to work or gym workout or friday morning sleep in or the chores after you drop off the kids dad or mum. Uh, and we will definitely get you up to speed before the weekend or you can listen to us over the weekend while you do the housework or whatever you do on the weekend so uh, do join us every week friday mornings the other side australia your weekly shortcut to Australia's best commentary in just about around an hour a week. <laughs>